Healthcare and senior care is fraught with problems and challenges, but we're also seeing some amazing new clinical treatments and resources. This show will help illuminate and uncover the good, bad, and the ugly in order to equip patients, families, and other healthcare providers. Welcome to Senior Care Confidential. Good afternoon. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Hello, Joe. Fantastic. Good. Is it hot today? It is. Yeah. I know. It's Texas. Just enjoying that Texas summer heat. Um, we have a column from the heat. We're here in this wonderful studio at Real News, and we have a very special guest today. And not only is he an esteemed physician at the Cleveland Clinic. You're being um, me already. <laughs> he is my son. He's my second-born Christian Kyle Alch, Dr. Alch uh, from the Cleveland Clinic. And um, Christian has introduced a program called No One Dies Alone to some of the hospitals that he's been affiliated with. So Christian, let's just get started. How did you get involved with No One Dies Alone? Well, first of all, thank you for the introduction. Um, and thank you both for, for having me on today. Um, so my journey kind of with No One Dies Alone goes back to medical school. Uh, I was a part of a couple of different organizations in medical school. I was a part of the Gold Humanism Honor Society, which is kind of a honor society that seeks to kind of promote compassion and ethical care and um, just care of the, uh, the sick and dying among medical students. And I was part of the John P. McGovern Academy, which is a, um, an academy of physicians and medical students that kind of seeks to promote the ideals of a physician named uh, Sir William Osler, who really kind of promoted the idea that you're taking care of not a disease, but a patient with a disease. Yep. And it was with both of those organizations that I, I had some access to, to some funding to be able to get a, a project of kind of my choosing started. And when I was taking some time, just kind of reviewing some other kind of grassroots or volunteer efforts that had been started at, at different hospitals, I came across No One Dies Alone. And of course I, I knew, um, I knew quite a bit just about the needs of, of the, the elderly and and how often um, our elderly elderly patients do um, pass without friends or family present from the work of my mom over so many years in, in hospice care. Mm. And there was just something about the program that, that really kind of resonated with me. It resonated with my heart. And the more I looked into it, the more I, I just knew this was something I had to be a part of. Um, so that was where I kind of gained my understanding, my interest in No One Dies Alone. And it was a really, it was just really amazing seeing how any possible barrier to, to getting it going just seemed to kind of fall away because it, it just, it meant so much to everyone I, I came in contact with in, in the hospital to, to get something like this going. Um, so you had to go so recruit yourself? 2018. Go ahead. You had to go recruit yourself for volunteers for this project? I did. So um, when I was a medical student, I, I did this my senior year of medical school, so it would have been 2017, 2018. One thing that we had a pretty robust kind of activity in is, is a Facebook group. And I knew that medical students, nursing students, PT students had a lot of free time on their hands, maybe had the enthusiasm to be able to take part in something like this. Um, one thing that there's a lot of literature on is a lot of times the first patient care experience or, or 
experience that that medical students in particular have with another person is actually the cadaver lab. And there's literature that shows that's actually when the dehumanization of medicine starts because you're already starting learning not from an actual person, but from a, a body. Mm. And kind of with that, there's just a lot of momentum in trying to get younger medical students at the bedside, speaking with patients, getting to know patients. And there's a real, a real need and a real desire for first and second years when they're just kind of knee deep in textbooks and tests, et cetera, to, to get some experience just sitting and caring for another person. Just to reframe that versus going gross anatomy first. Well, yeah, and I'll exactly. say, yeah. and when I was at nursing school, we had maybe half a paragraph on hospice and palliative care, and that was back in the 90s. Um, but had I had an opportunity like this, you know, when I sit with a dying patient, I learn so much that there, there's always something that the nurse or doctor or caregiver gets, family. There's something you learn in that process. And just having that opportunity in school would have been so valuable to me, you know, as a nurse later on. So I just love this. How did the medical students that got involved, what did they get out of these volunteer hours? Yeah, absolutely. So really, you know, the amazing thing and one thing I didn't expect is as soon as we we put this out there to medical students, we had probably 60 respond and say they wanted to be a part of it. Within a few months, we were able to kind of establish a training for the medical students. So we got a palliative care physician um, to do some teaching on on what are the expected changes of a dying patient. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, you know, we, we see things like, you know, modeling, we see their, their breathing become more shallow. Um, what does that mean in terms of, you know, how, how much longer do we expect this patient's going to live? Um, and we also had some just specific training on how do you enter into that sacred space with a dying patient? And, and to get to, to your question, um, I, I honestly think one of the most remarkable things about No One Dies Alone is just how how people's own gifts and talents just help kind of bless a dying patient in just such a beautiful way. So we, I mean, we had medical students that were, you know, concert violinists that would bring their instruments to the bedside. Wow. We had people bring pieces of poetry that um, were particularly meaningful to them. So it was really just. I mean, people's own kind of like creativity and, and people's own interests they were able to use in a way that that gave gave that patient someone present with them in the dying process. And the the um, honestly, the, the feedback from the medical students was just incredible. Um, also, just entirely positive. And and one thing that we communicated pretty early on is, you know, sometimes being stepping right in and being that com compassionate companion at the bedside isn't a role that people are necessarily called to immediately. And that's okay. There's a, there's so many ways you can serve and no one dies alone apart from that. But for the um, the medical students that did have that experience, I think it was it was just so positive and, and, and so rewarding. I remember um, when I was a new hospice nurse, there was a nurse who was ER and she wanted to do hospice. She felt like it was going to be her calling. And so she she rode with me for two weeks. And 
every patient we left, she would sob. <laughs> I mean, she would not stop crying. And, and I said, I just don't know if hospice is for you because it is a special calling. Not everybody can do sit at the yeah. bedside. You know, I know for Christian, myself, you, Brian, I have a strong faith, you know, and I just have a hope. And I, um, so for me, it's so rewarding to be at that bedside. So, so Christian, tell us if there is somebody listening that wants to get No One Dies Alone started at their institution, what do they do? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the first thing that I would say is that there's over 500 hospitals across the country that have No One Dies Alone programs. So wow. I, I think that, you know, just doing a little bit of research, you can, you can actually find probably places nearby, depending on where you live, that you can kind of reach out and even get a taste of what it's like to sit vigil at the bedside of a, of a dying patient. Um, I think for getting it started at your hospital or at your setting, the things that, that I think are really important are making sure you're involving the right stakeholders. So, so one thing that was really important to me when I was a medical student is I never wanted uh, no one dies alone to be anything that was just kind of a rogue medical student venture or something that would just kind of pop up and flame out as soon as I left. I really wanted it to be kind of embedded in the culture of the hospital. And because of that, it was it went all through volunteer services. So they did they did background checks. Um, everyone got uh, oriented appropriately. Everyone had uniforms, name badges, et cetera. So I think reaching out to the volunteer service department at your hospital, and then I think also involving the palliative care team. Um, they're really the ones that are kind of the most plugged in on a lot of times patients that might be appropriate for no one dies alone. And they're really the best resource you can find for things like teaching, for what, what kind of behavior is appropriate at the bedside of a dying patient, what, again, what physical changes you can expect. Those are kind of the two the two areas that I think are, are kind of key to prioritize when you're kind of thinking about trying to get something like this started. So that's where I kind of focus my attention in Galveston. I've tried to do something similar at a hospital I work with here in Medina and kind of the, the same, I followed the same process and it's, it's worked incredibly well. I think other people to involve and that can be really helpful. Chaplains are so well trained in how to enter into that sacred space and how to create a sacred space with a dying patient. So I think leaning in on their experiences, we had a chaplain at the hospital in Medina speak on kind of how you enter into a sacred space and, and how you can be, what it means to be present with a patient. Um, so those are kind of the things that I would think about. The, the wonderful thing about No One Dies Alone is that it's, it's not something that requires a ton of resources to develop. The, the resource you need is people. Um, it's it's not something that's expensive. Um, really, you just need you need people to um, to have that uh, have that you know same goal in mind that no one should have to die alone and um, and really you know any kind of possible barrier you'll just see kind of fall away because it just resonates with people's hearts so much. Wow. I have a couple of questions for you. You mentioned that there were outside of the bedside roles, that there were other things that you could do. If you didn't feel like you were comfortable for that piece of it, what other kind of roles can people fill? Whether it's donations, whether it's Definitely. scheduling, I don't know what that looks like. 
Yeah. So, you know, the, the way that we kind of structured No One Dies Alone in, in Galveston, Texas, where I where I got it started um, with some other like-minded medical students is we have positions called vigil coordinators. Um, so the a vigil is the process of, of having a compassionate companion at the bedside. These are typically two-hour shifts. Um, it, it's actually amazing that that seems so long, but it, it actually, everyone reports it just goes by so quickly. Um, but again, not everyone is called to that role. And the vigil coordinator is, is kind of the one coordinating that. And essentially the way it works is the nursing staff will have what we used as a pager, a pager number. They'll page with the location of a patient that may qualify for no one dies alone. The qualifications being in the last 48 to 72 hours of life, not having family or friends present, and, and having DNR comfort care orders in place. And the vigil coordinator will reach out to the volunteer base to try to schedule people in that um, two kind hour shift. Kind of around the clock. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, uh, around the clock is the goal. I think one thing that I try to communicate to my trainees is dying is a process. It's not, it's not just a moment, it's a process. So even though we have a goal to maintain a 24 hour presence, even if we can't do that, we're still doing what we can to ensure the patient does not go through the dying process alone. Okay. Now we, we had such a robust group of volunteers in Galveston, we could often get a 24 hour presence. Um, but again, the goal in mind is that no one should have to go through the dying process alone. Yeah. Um, and that's really what the role of the vigil coordinator is. Um, th there's other things that we found very helpful. We had a nurse champion in Galveston that she just took it on herself to go to the nursing floors just to do teaching with the nursing staffs on what no one dies alone is and what it can offer. Okay. Because the nursing staff is really the, the, the gatekeeper for who we can actually go in and see. They're the ones that see the patients every day. They're the ones that know what orders are in. They, they know which patients are passing. So they're really the ones that we depend on to reach out, to communicate with us. Um, so, so again, there's other roles people can play in No One Dies Alone, apart from just being that vigil presence. And that's something we, we always try to reinforce. Okay. And because I've never done this before, I know both of you guys have. When you, you mentioned that how to enter and how to kind of be present in that what you, you define it as a, as a, as a sacred space for yeah. like me as a female member, you know, I, I haven't lost a close family member yet, you know, but as, if, as we go through these experiences in life, what would that look like? What's like, what's a proper, I guess, etiquette maybe with the right term to use Absolutely. for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so one thing that w we always go through is, uh, you know, just there, there's obviously protocol. We, we will, we will have, just kind of starting out, when you get a, a an email saying, hey, we have a patient that meets no one dies alone criteria, would you be willing to do a shift? We'll have just kind of verbal um, read back communication with our volunteers. They'll call the nursing staff and say, hey, I'm coming um, to sit vigil at the bedside of this patient for this time. They'll go straight to the, the desk. Um, and, and by that point, they'll already know, are there any precautions in place? Obviously, you know, you step in hand washing, um, just kind of standard um, precautions. And, and one thing that I always encouraged my volunteers to do is when you first get to the bedside, you know, hold the patient's hand and say, hello, my name is Christian Alch. 
I'm a volunteer. I'm here to sit at your bedside um, with you. And, and just to have you. that introduction to the patient, just to already kind of establish that, um, that relationship um, between a, uh, a, the volunteer and the patient. Just at that point, just two humans. Well, and I think, you know, and I've heard doctors, I've heard speakers over the years say it is just as hard for them to say goodbye as it is for us to tell them goodbye. And so there are a lot of times they're afraid and just holding their hand. I've had patients just squeeze my hand and it's so sweet and I just squeeze it right back. And um, just just being there, being present. Um, I, I, one thing I'll say, Christian, too, like not being on your cell phone or, you know, talking to a friend. It's when they're in that process, you know, their world is very small and just be respectful of that time, be respectful of that time. And you are, it's an honor to be in their presence in such a sacred time. And, And one thing that I try to communicate to my volunteers is a lot of times we frame it in terms of trying to create a sacred space but, but it already is a sacred mm-hmm. space. What we're doing is we're entering a sacred space. Okay. So absolutely, you know, no cell phones, things like that. You're, you're entering into a, a sacred moment with that patient. So, so things that, that I, you know, I, I say people sometimes can play music. Um, that's a healing, just a comforting thing for patients to hear. Holding their hand, telling stories to patients. Um, just sharing a little bit of your life. Uh, you know, some some of my volunteers like to have poetry, literature, scriptures that may be meaningful to them to read over the patient. Um, and then um, and then again, p- playing music. Um, but but one thing that that I found is, is a lot of times just kind of sharing stories with the patient and, and always just kind of giving them that reassurance of I just want you to know that I'm here with you, that you do not have to die alone. Um, that I'm, thank you for be, allowing me to be in this this moment with you. Those are just kind of things to, that, that we can just communicate okay. with the patient and just really make sure we're honoring that time we have with them. Sure, that makes sense. So my question is, I've not ever, being a physical therapist, I've never been at a bedside in that last 40 to 72 hours. So can you describe what that experience looks like from the from the caregiver, from the the volunteer's perspective and from the, the patient's perspective? Like, what are they seeing? What is the patient experiencing that? Are they conscious? Are they aware of what's happening? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, before I even get into that, one thing that I, I do want to, I do encourage my volunteers is when we step into the space with a dying patient, you have to kind of take off your nursing hat. You have to take off your physical therapy hat. You have to take off your physician hat because that's not really your role. Your role is to be, to sit vigil and be a compassionate companion. Makes sense. And, and that's that's one thing that I, I actually spoke to the medical students a lot for is, you know, the, the nurse is there to take care of the patient. They're going to be administering the medications. They're gonna be checking in, giving, you know, giving morphine, giving Ativan, giving kind of the the end of life comfort care set your role is, is to be the compassionate presence for them. And, and the things that you're going to see as, as patients kind of begin to transition, what we say is, a, you know, when we're getting to days out of life, things like hunger and thirst, 
aren't going to be experienced in the same way. When our body starts to shut down, we don't really have the same urges for things like food or water. So things like you'll walk in and there won't be things like artificial hydration or artificial feedings going on because that's not, that's not comfortable to a dying patient. Their, their body is, is shutting down. Um, Things you'll see, you'll see modeling of the feet. You'll see the, their breathing pattern become more erratic and you'll start to see their breathing actually become shallower towards the end of life. And um, that's one thing that can be sometimes a little bit, um, startling for families, but what we try to reassure them with is a lot of times some of these physical changes are actually much more distressing on family members than, than it is on the actual patient. Okay. Um, now, are they cognitively aware? Are they in and out of consciousness? Yeah. Are so they communicating at all? There's so much we, we don't know. Okay. Um, one thing that we're, we're taught and communicated is that hearing is the last sense that's present. And I try to communicate that again, there's so much we, we don't know, but um, really just kind of encouraging my volunteers just to speak encouragement and hope into, into the patients that they're sitting with. Um, one thing that, that you'll also see kind of at the bedside is, is we call it terminal secretions. The more colloquial term, term is the death rattle. What that is is actually pulmonary edema. There's medications that we can administer for that. Again, it's not really, there's no evidence to suggest that that's uncomfortable for the patient, but it can sometimes be uncomfortable for um, family members. And, and in this particular case, you know, maybe that is something that, that could be unfamiliar to someone who has never sat at the bedside of someone who's dying. I think one thing that my volunteers can be is our advocates for the patients. So if there is something that the volunteer is seeing that they're not sure about, I encourage them to bring it up with the nurse. Just say like, hey, this is something that that I'm seeing right now. Is this something that's expected or is this something maybe that we can um, mitigate with medications. Those are, those are very, very valuable questions to ask. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Christian, thank you so much. This has been so informative and I hope that people watching will get no one dies alone in their programs and it doesn't have to be a hospital. It can be a nursing home setting. It could be a hospice inpatient unit. Um, there's so many opportunities. So how do they get, re- get in touch with you if they have questions for you? Absolutely. So um, if anyone has any questions, I, I think you can feel free to, to write into the, um, to the podcast. Uh, I'm sure that um, my, my email, I'm happy to have kind of sh- shot out and I'm, I'm happy to, to answer any questions about my experience or, or any way I can be helpful. Um, feel free to reach out at any time. Great. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Great information. We hope you have a great day. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.